You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. This Friday, your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley! It's anger! Let me at him! Fear! Safety checklist is complete! Disgust! Ew! Ew! Ugh. Sadness is in the house! Oh no! Hello! I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going! Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. While you were skipping stones, building forts and flying kites, I was missing school and all my Saturday nights. Other kids were climbing trees and rolling down hills. I was singing songs to pay my family's bills. Little me. Hello, I'm Mark Tuminelli, and welcome back to the Little Me Podcast. We have an amazing guest today, and I can't wait to hear his Broadway story. At just six years old, he wowed audiences on TV's Star Search and went on to make his Broadway debut as Gavroche in Les Miserables. He played the role of Frankie Valli in Jersey Boys in the San Francisco Company, the Chicago Company, and on Broadway. He received a 2014 Tony nomination for creating the role of Barry Mann in Beautiful, the Carole King musical. And recently, he stopped the show singing I Got You, Babe, as Sonny Bono in The Share Show on Broadway. His live album, A Little Help from My Friends, and his studio album, Minor Fall, Major Lift, are available on Spotify and iTunes. Please welcome Broadway's Jared Spector. <laughs> Mark, Hi, Jared. thank you for having me. That's like a good intro. Like you have, You've done a lot of cool things. <laughs> and I didn't mention so many of them. <laughs> it sounds... Decent, I guess. Like I was like surprised. Like, oh yeah, I remember yeah, that. I that. Uh, it's nice that when you to hear you say them all in a row, because sometimes yeah. you know you feel like you sit around doing nothing. But man, when you say it, it's nice. Well, you'll be able to listen to this episode back any day. You're not feeling great about yourself. Okay, so I'll just clip the first twenty seconds and play it for myself in the morning as an affirmation. I'll send it to you as a special MP3. Okay, so it sounds like from birth you were kind of singing and performing. Talk to me about how it started and how your parents like began this journey for you? Sure. Yeah. So <clears throat> as the story goes, according to my parents, now granted, I can't remember all this because I was too young to remember anything. I was um, sort of a hybrid between only child and youngest child. My siblings are seven, eight, and nine years older than me. So while I wasn't an only child, I did spend a lot of time as, especially as you know, a young person, you know, with siblings who were in school. So um, I, uh, when I was... Mm, say two years old or so my mother used to take me everywhere in a car in the car with her she would you know wherever she went during the day I was her you know uh, her 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 first mate <laughs> so uh, apparently I started memorizing radio commercials because this was of course back in the day when there weren't as many commercials so you might actually hear the same one often enough for a two-year-old to memorize and then start singing along with them and realizing that her son could sing, she decided to teach me a couple of songs like Sunny Side of the Street and Me and My Shadow. Very fitting, uh, since I was, in fact, her, her shadow. shadow. Yeah. <laughs> so we sang these songs for my father. Uh, my dad, uh, I come from a sort of lineage on that side of drummers. My father was a drummer. Uh, my grandfather was a drummer in World War II. I mean, I, I you know, sort of a, a long line of drummers. And um, we, <laughs> yeah, so we ended up singing for my dad. He was very impressed. Took me to a uh, local coach uh, named Russell Faith. I lived in the Philadelphia area and uh, Russ had been the voice teacher for Andrea McArdle, speaking of Ooh. little me. So the original Annie, right? So we took him there. And uh, so she, so he was also like, you know, for two and a half, three years old, not, not so bad. So they sent me to audition for a local talent show called uh, the Al Alberts Showcase, which if you uh, were conscious in the Philadelphia area in the 80s, you might have watched on weekend mornings. What might be on an Al Alberts Showcase episode? Oh, my gosh. So it was like you'd have some, some adult performers. And like, you know, local Philadelphia talent. And then, of course, the highlight of the show was the teeny bopper section when Uncle Al 
would sit. This sounds like this, this sounds so, so bad creepy. When you it's, describe it. It's, it's it's really very horrible. sweet if you watch it. But the description, yeah, I, I'm trying to find a way to say these Uncle words. Al. It, yeah, Uncle Al surrounded by Tons eleven children. Yes. <laughs> no, it was, it was so sweet. But if you go back and watch, but anyway, um, so Uncle Al with like eleven kids who are dressed up, you know, uh, like for a pageant, and then one at a time we would like he would like uh, we would tell Uncle Al a joke. Uh, and he was so sweet and supportive. And then, you know, he'd go to our center stage spotlight and, you know, one at a time, a few of the kids would sing every week. So I got on this show and basically from age three to age six, I had to learn a new song and a new joke every week for a, a recording on Thursday night. And then it would air uh, in the weekend morning, Sunday morning or Saturday morning, you know, that whatever, you know, 10 o'clock. So that was my youth and my start in the business until uh, Star Search. Uh, and so that was, you were six years old on Star Search. I just watched yeah. you this morning sing Splish Splash. Um, yeah. And it is quite dynamic. I mean, <laughs> as someone who does this for a living, I'd be like, get that kid, an agent, like here, you're so good. How many weeks were you on Star Search? I was on five weeks originally. Wow. And then uh, I lost in the fifth week to Countess Vaughn. Okay. Who, uh, people might know from Moesha fame. Yeah. And then um, I went to the finals and lost to Countess once again. Uh, Countess was an extraordinary young singer. Uh, she just, it was like Whitney Houston, but nine year, nine or 10 years old. I mean, she did have a few years on me. I'm going to give myself the benefit of, uh, I was a few years younger. You were six yeah, years old. I was six and Countess was a little older, but she, uh, whew, man, she could, she could wail. So yes, I would have voted for her as well. Despite I, at the time I wouldn't have voted for her. I was heartbroken, but now I would vote for her. Now, were you like enjoying this? Were you like this? I love performing all these songs. Were you, were your parents pushing you? Tell me where we were at. I, you know, people ask me this question. I ask myself this question all the time because no five-year-old is like, I want to go audition for Star Search. I don't think, I mean, maybe in 2020 that happens yeah. a little more often with, you know, I want to be on American Idol or whatever, but I just don't, I can't imagine having asked for it. But I also, you know, having been around enough of my siblings' children and my friends' children to know that you can't really force a three-year-old to learn a song if they're not willing. Uh, and you can't learn make a six-year-old learn a song and go on television if they're not willing. So I think I, it was, of course, some blend between my parents wanting me to do it, uh, recognizing that they had a kid who could do it, uh, you know, for better or for worse, and then ultimately deciding, uh, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna push him into this, um, and my willingness to do it. I mean, it's, you know, sort of have all those things have to, have to have that little perfect storm. So, I remember loving music. That that is one thing that like, I I always remember loving singing. I even remember enjoying singing exercises and diaphragmatic exercises, even from a kid, and standing against a wall with you know my teacher or my father's hand against my stomach to make sure that I was breathing properly. Like I even remember liking all of that. Um, and I've always loved music. I've always loved singing. So, uh, you know, I think it's the it's really ultimately as I got older, the business side of the business that I loathe, but the uh, the art side I've always liked. So doing something like Star Search obviously is giving you a big platform and people are knowing who you are and talking about you and trying to get you other opportunities. What kind of things were coming up during that Star Search time or immediately following it? Yeah. So um, after Star Search, uh, they took me on like a conference tour along with some of the other, you know, uh, winners at the time. And I remember we went to all these conventions and met all these celebrities and uh, I did, you know, some like local variety and talent shows because of it, because it was a national show and it was a big deal. And I was a Philadelphia kid. And uh, there was a moment in time where I could have potentially maybe been on um, the Mickey Mouse Club. Which with was Justin Timberlake with and Justin Britney Timberlake and Britney no big and deal. Christina and all these guys. Yeah, because we're all around the same age. Yeah. And maybe just a little older than me. But um yeah, it was right around that time, and uh, I could have been on that show, but but again, I, I had older siblings, so when I'm six or seven, my siblings are, you know, in high school, early high school, and my parents just couldn't, in good conscience, conscience move to Orlando for half the year. Who or wants to family. live in Orlando? 
right? <laughs> Unless you're Mickey Mouse, like I just don't that. know who wants yeah. to live in Orlando. So it, it was hard, you know. I mean, in retrospect, was that a missed opportunity? Would I have been an in sync? I don't know, but uh, it's it's I guess it's within the realm of possibility. It probably uh, worked out better for your long career, yeah, the long sure. game, uh, maybe well, long term mental health. It yes. worked out better. Certainly. Yeah. Uh, have you gone back and watched any of those Star Search performances? Oh, yeah. You know, for a while, I didn't. <laughs> but as I've gotten older and sort of been able to separate my current self with my childhood self and be like, you know, and sort of be able to objectively watch it. Uh, it's, you know, they're they're crazy fun. The arrangements are Bobby Darren. And I still love, I mean, I like Bobby Darren's one of my favorite of all time. So of course, like, you know, I, I love that that's the music that my parents had me singing then. Uh, it's part of why it's like, so ingrained in my body. So I'm grateful. And also I've, you know, I've sort of gone from keeping it at arm's length to very much embracing it. In my last couple of shows, I've used clips of myself singing as a kid and then segued into doing an adult version of uh, Splish Splash or an adult version of Mac the Knife or, you know, singing all the songs that I, that I grew up on. Um, so yeah, I, uh, I, I, I do, I do watch them occasionally now. My wife is, uh, is a big fan. I mean, it's kind of astounding to watch a young kid do that and have that much control of the stage and be that comfortable and that dynamic. Um, and I think for some adult performers, it feels like they're watching someone else. Like it doesn't feel at all like, oh, that's weird. That was me. Yeah, it doesn't feel like it's me anymore. It doesn't. If anything, I if anything, I'm just judgmental of. Oh, that note was a little off. Oh God, what is that phrasing? Oh, what am I doing? Oh, my father's choreography is so <laughs> cheesy. Oh my God, <laughs> yeah. Jared, look up. I had this thing when I had to look down. God only knows why. I'm like looking down half the time. There was because you're seven. Because I was that six. I had seven. Whatever. I didn't know what the hell was happening. So I'm looking down, but I just look. I can lift your eyes. Oh my God. When did Les Mis come into your like sphere? When did that start? Um, I think my my mother tried to take me. Uh, to the first national tour stop in Philadelphia was when I was seven. Uh, I was too young. And then when it came back around, I was nine. And that time is when they were able to take me. So they took me, listen to this crazy. They took <laughs> Sit me back, through, everyone. Oh, yeah, here we go. <laughs> Especially if you're a current actor, this is like, there's like part of this story that's a little bit of a nightmare. So they took me to a cattle call. For anyone listening who doesn't know what a cattle call is, it's where, in this particular case, you had, let's say, I don't know, 100, 200 kids between, you know, 7 and 12, uh, all of them, like, branded with numbers, like their cattle, and all of their bazillion stage parents, all in a ballroom. It's it's like your worst nightmare. Then I got through, so I got into that audition, I got through that round, went to the call back in New York. Now, this is a smaller group. This is now, I don't know, I can't remember, I think 10, 12, 15, something like that, number of kids and their parents in the waiting room. And I was the first one in and I sang my bit, which I think was like a little bit of uh, little people um, and maybe some of the first time, like, how do you do my names at that part? Mm -hmm. And then uh, Richard J. Alexander, who was the executive director at the time, called my parents into the room, which I didn't know was unusual, but actually a little bit unusual. And he gave me the job right there on the spot. And, uh, and gay, he's a like, congratulations. Jared has the job. Here are three tickets. Go and see the show tonight on Broadway. Uh, and then as we were about to leave the, the room, they were like, Oh, wait, wait, do us a favor. Please don't celebrate on the way out because we don't want all the other kids to know that the job's already gone. <laughs> oh, oh no. So at the time I've did my best acting, but now as every time I leave it, I was I, probably the kid, like sitting in the hallway. You walked right past me. <laughs> Where did you did you audition for Gavar? Oh my god, I had like a ton of callbacks. I was in that room with Richard J at Nole, brought my parents in. Same thing. They asked me to go on tour. And Get out that, here. that was my parents were like had jobs. They couldn't do that. And that was the end of that saga anyway what, what year i'm so sorry we can i, I, I don't 91 okay yeah so that was just after i think mine was 1990 yeah so, like, yeah 1991 something like that something oh like that. wow that's wild, wild. but it, it worked out better for you than for me so you <laughs> you didn't celebrate you went oh we all went my whole family got to see the show too it was very exciting i asked for six tickets i had such balls i was like <laughs> I'll, I'll, take, I'll take six thank you did they give you six? Yes. I mean, the I, Imperial was a pretty big theater. It was so a big theater, and it was like yeah. Les Mis, and it's you know tenth year. Okay, or more than that. <laughs> All right. So tell me about. So now we know, like, where 
Did you book the tour? Or you booked Broadway to start. I booked the tour. Okay. I booked the Philadelphia tour stop. So the Philadelphia was at the Forest Theater. Um, so you know, I went to the show that night, watched it. Uh, you know, loved it, but also was terrified of this. Just seeming, it was just. It seemed simultaneously sitting in the theater. The theater seemed so big, and the stage stage seemed so far away. But it also seemed enormous and imposing you know the barricades oh when you're sit, you know when you're a kid yeah. it's like those barricades are, like, are simultaneously like a little scary with all the smoke and like the people dressed as beggars and moaning but also <laughs> like god is there anything you want to do other than climb that damn barricade which then you ultimately get to do is the coolest thing uh, i still job. think evrash was my favorite role that i've ever played is there anything about you it's everything he's funny he's plucky he gets to he's 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 a smart ass. He gets fun stuff to sing. He gets to fight with everyone. He, you're, you, the makeup was taking a cork, lighting it on fire, blowing it out, and rubbing it on your face. Imagine Great. you're nine. And yeah. then you get to hold a rifle and then get like this ultimate death scene and you get to be a martyr. It's really, it is the ultimate part. Those three um, shots are really oh, it's, oh, it's amazing. You get a shot in the head. It's crazy. Makes a meal out of that. Oh, you really get to. Oh, and because that thing is sort of, um, it, it because it's sort of Colavoce. I mean, they have to, it's Roboto. They just have to follow you. They just have to go, you know, if you sing it slow, it's going slow. <laughs> you can really. You're coming in at three hours, moment. 20 minutes tonight. <laughs> Jared's on. Right. When you're, <laughs> and meanwhile, you're nine and you're, you're dead asleep by like 1030 backstage. Oh my God. Um, yeah. You but that, do him yeah. in Philly for yes. that run. And then yeah. is that supposed to be the end of the journey for you? It that was the, it was originally supposed to be the end of the journey. Yes, I, I was supposed to do the, it was, you know, whatever it was, a few month run in Philadelphia and that was supposed to be it. And then, because back in the day and, they, and maybe when they offered you the tour, they they explained this. So there were, two, there's always two Gavroshes because of equity rules. Each Gavrosh did four shows a week and there was, so there was one who was permanently on the tour and then there was, an, they would pick up a new kid in each tour stop, the alternate, the other, you know, the other Gavrosh. So when we were in Philly, that was me. And then the guy who was on the tour uh, the touring Gavroche was going to leave the tour after the next stop in Los Angeles before the tour went to Chicago, which was its final destination, but also like a long-term sit-down company. So I then, they asked me if I would then be the touring Gavroche in Chicago. So I ended up doing it at the, um, oh goodness, what is the name of that theater? Oh, it's one of the big ones. I'll, I'll think of it in a sec. Uh, the Auditorium Theater in Chicago is an enormous theater. Mm -hmm. um, and I got to do the show there as like the sit down for several months with the promise of Broadway down the line, which which happened you know very soon after. So I ended up going to Broadway and I, I did Broadway off and on. Like I would fill in when anyone was on vacation. I did it for several months stints at a time. I was hard because I was in school. And you know, even though New York is only 90 miles from where I grew up, I would always have to miss a Wednesday because of the matinees. There was a lot of schlepping back and forth from my parents. I mean, so you never lived, you were not living in New York City. So you guys no. would do that yes. every day. Yeah, exactly. Ooh. I lived in Chicago when we did the show there. We lived there and yeah. we were like, my parents were, were had to like, you know, be in two separate cities at the time because my mother was with me permanently. My father was there as much as he could, but he also was, you know, working full time and running his business. We so had to spend some time in Philly and I had older siblings. So it's not like we just leave them permanently. So, uh, that one, I, th that one I had a tutor, but yeah, in New York, it was like, I would go to school on Mondays. I would go to school Tuesdays, Tuesday after school. We would go up to New York for the night, for the show that night, stay in New York, stay in New York for the two shows on Wednesday, then drive back to Philly Wednesday night after the show. I'd go to school Thursday, go up to New York Thursday night for the show, back to Philly afterwards, school on Friday at home, and then back to New York for Friday night, the two shows on Saturday and then Sunday. And then after the matinee Sunday, we'd go back home. So it was like, I mean, listen, I did a lot of sleeping in the car. I did a lot of homework in the car. So for me, it was a good time. But as a as an adult now, thinking about having to do that with my kid, no. It would just be a no, no, no. You can sing on, you know, on Zoom for people. Like, we're not, I'm not doing that. You can go right on back to the Al Albert show. And <laughs> Al Albert show, yes, that's it. You can do that as well. Um, wait, When you talk to your parents about any of that, is do they talk about how hard that was for them? You know, to their credit, they really don't. They really don't talk to me about how hard it was. Um, I think that they, I mean, first of all, my parents like loved the whole scene and they loved having, they loved Les Rob. I mean, I think my parents saw the show a hundred some odd times. No no, no lie. Especially sec, they would come in second acted as well because so much of Gavarash's stuff is in the second act anyway. And back in the day, you could actually slip into a show, especially when you were one of the kid's parents and like you knew the ushers. So they, you know, they could watch. Um, 
but they really never, they never complain to me about, they, even now they never talk about how hard it was, even though I know it was, I know it was taxing. Um, but they're always extremely generous in that way. Who did you get to do that show with? Were there big stars that had come in while you were there? Not, uh, honestly, I mean, there might have been, and I don't remember. You're like, I don't really know Melba Moore, and I don't know her <laughs> that. I, don't know I remember, her. like, Natalie Toro. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I, I remember, like, I know that Daisy Egan was doing Secret Garden at the same time, but she wasn't, and she, I think she'd been a lame is, but, like, we didn't do it at the same time. Um, and I do, my, I, the person I remember most, honestly, is uh, J. Mark McVeigh, who- He was just, Valjean forever, he, right? Yeah, he was Valjean yeah. forever. He was I the think first he, one I ever saw. Yes, and he's done, so you know, I mean- the guy was just magic. He was just, his voice was magic. He, no one, and this is no disrespect to Colm Wilkinson or anyone else, but to me, like, he was Jean Valjean. Like, no one could sing it like this guy. It was just this effortless, beautiful, pop, rock, legit mix that I have been trying to emulate for my entire life because just this, the way that this guy, the phrasing and everything. So while I don't remember any celebrities, I know J. Mark McVeigh is a, is a known name in the Broadway community. He might not be a, a well-known name at large, but some of the recordings, I think maybe even the 20-year uh, recording, I think is J. Mark McVeigh. But I know his, I know his recordings are out there. He was, he was incredible. He's who I remember. And um, were you auditioning a lot during that time? Not things. Not a ton. No. Um, I think that the things that were available to me to audition for were like secret garden falsettos. And, uh, I, I'm not sure if I ever went in for either of them. I don't remember going in for either of them. Uh, again, you know, I don't think my parents were ready to move to New York on a permanent basis. Um, I was doing the Broadway production for stints at a time, like never, never like a long-term, like I'll sign for a year. It was like for three months for this summer or for like, the, you know, in between hirings of this person and the next person, or while that person's on a month leave or a vacation or whatever. And I think for that like if I had to exactly, yeah. exactly for, for a number of years, but I think if it had been something like booking falsettos when it opened or booking secret garden, that would have obviously been a long-term commitment. And I'm not sure that my parents were ready at that moment to sort of move permanently to New York. When you wrapped up your lame is experience, were you mm -hmm. just back home and to auditioning for whatever came up. How did how did the Larsons of Vegas come to you? Oh yeah, the Larsons of Las Vegas. Yeah, no, of course. So uh, throughout this time, I was also uh, recording. Like there were there, I was recording with Michael Cimbello, who was the original, who was the writer and singer of the song Maniac uh, from Flashdance. Yes, uh, badass song. Guy's an incredible guitar player, writer, singer, and so he and his brother were writing music, and I was recording. Um, and so I was spending some time in Los Angeles because Mark Michael was Los Angeles based. So uh, there were some summers, multiple summers where I was out there. And while I was out there, I was also auditioning. And then this audition for this sitcom came around. And it seemed like a dream for me and certainly for my my parents who had raised me. Uh, the idea was it was so OK, it was with the Larsons of Las Vegas. I think that when I went on for the audition, some of the some of the cast was already pegged, including Peter Boyle, who played the grandfather, uh, who was who would play my grandfather in the in the pilot. And ultimately, for for everyone who doesn't remember, it was a like young Frankenstein, you know, famous, incredible on Everybody Loves Raymond. I mean, you know, just a classic comic actor. And uh, Michael Rispoli, who uh, was in Sopranos, right? The Sopranos. Yeah, that's right. Uh, um, <clears throat> so. Uh, Jackie, who who I think he passed away. He passed. Away? Oh, I don't want to ruin it for anyone, but he he I think he, he has cancer when the show opens up, so you know he he doesn't live that long. But anyway, um, yeah. So I I, I auditioned for the show. I was going to get to sing and be a, an aspiring Las Vegas lounge singer and piano player. So suddenly, but you I were got, a teenager. Yeah, I was like fifteen. Okay. Yeah, I was like fourteen or fifteen when I auditioned and shot this pilot, and so I was you know I, I got to do everything on this show. It was like, it was amazing, and then. Uh, at that point, I was old enough where my older siblings were out of the house. They were either in college or had already graduated from college and they were ready. So my parents at that point were like, okay, if this works out, we actually can move to Los Angeles or at least move there for the nine months a year that a sitcom were to shoot if it gets picked up. So now we were like full on and fully committed. And the the president of NBC at the time after I got the role and it was this wonderful thing and it was, and I remember this team, sorry, I had to mention this before the team is Danny Jacobson, who was the executive producer of mad about you. Um, was like the writers from some of the writers, the staff writers from friends mad about you. I mean, it was like this dream team of people and it seemed like this can't miss show. Uh, and ultimately 
it wasn't picked up, even though the president of NBC had like, you know, sort of said it to my parents casually, like, you guys got to start looking for a place to live out here. And so here I am at 14, 15. I'm like, okay, my life's about to change. All the things are going to happen. And so all the dreams are going to come true. And we're going to move to Los Angeles and I'm going to be on TV every week. And, uh, I'm going to buy my grandmother a house, you know, whatever the hell yeah. you think when you're a kid. And, um, there I was with, with, you know, and this, this thing just fell apart. And you know, what's funny is, uh, one of the, one of the big pieces of feedback I remember them telling me was that the test audiences didn't like that the father was a professional gambler. But what's bizarre is like, I would say within three or four years of that, maybe even less, um, the Texas Hold'em like took was became a craze in this country. And the idea that you would have a sitcom about a guy who was a professional Texas Hold'em player would have actually been like right in the zeitgeist. But instead, they were just a few years premature. And I honestly think if that show had had, had tested like four or five years later, it would have been a it would have been a big hit. And instead, uh, it was the reason that I quit auditioning. Okay. So you say I'm retired, I'm I'm 15, I'm out. Yeah. I mean, I said I listen, I I had been leaving school early and going to New York and auditioning and having my life, my school life, my everyday regular, whatever that means, life interrupted since I was six years old. And now I'm 50. So now it's like eight, nine years later, I've been doing this all like the vast majority of my life. And I, it was twofold. One was that I was mature enough to realize that I wasn't mature enough to handle the emotional stress of having uh, some sort of career crisis in my mid-teens. And I also just longed to be what I thought was normal. I realize now, obviously, and, and I realized soon after, like, there is no such thing as normal. Normal is whatever you make of it. But for me at that time, I wanted to be a regular kid and have a girlfriend and just be, I, I, would, I wanted to go to class. I mean, I never gave up singing because it was so a part of me, whether by nature or by nurture. Uh, singing had been ingrained in me forever. And I knew that I would never give up singing and music and playing the piano, but uh, I just didn't want to go to New York. I, first of all, I didn't like New York. I, I I hated New York. And I thought it was loud and smelly and dirty. And all, all those things reasons, and all those things are true. And it's like one of the reasons I love it now, all the reasons I love it now. But at the, at the time, it just was so intimidating. And the idea of like flying to Los Angeles and I just, it just was like, you know, you I knew it. Was, yeah, I just, I did. Yeah, I just didn't want to do it. Was it a hard transition to go back to now playing a normal high school kid? I mean, I guess there was an aspect of like suddenly the, I'm not special in that way. Uh, I, you know, or I, for whatever that means, but I, I kind of wanted that. So I think it was fine. Uh, the, the, the idea that suddenly my life can't be uprooted. Suddenly I'm not going to be the, the one out of a hundred and some odd kids who isn't there for three months because he's shooting a pilot or he's auditioning or he's in a show and he's going, you know, that, that, that whole thing was gone. Um, which I think was good for me at the time. And, uh, but I still, again, I still sang. So, you know, I still got you to do your high school musicals. Yes. Yeah, so I was going to say, I still did all the high school musicals. I did, uh, let's see. I think when my freshman year of high school, there was a, a there were a lot of, uh, there was a strong group of seniors, uh, in like the musical theater, uh, arena. And so I was not in the pajama game that year. Okay. I didn't do it. The next year we did hair. I played burger and hair. The year after that, I think, oh my God, I can't even remember what, what did we do? Oh, we did, uh, we did, um, 42nd street. I played Billy Lawler. And then even though I can't dance, but you know, I just got to sing dames and I got to sing all that. I got to sing all the songs. Then my senior year, we did carousel and I played Billy Bigelow. Uh, I am not a very large guy. So like imagine a five, seven and changed at that point, I might've been like 140 pounds. Billy Bigelow. Uh, so yeah, it was a, it was a stretch. You were great. I was, oh, I sang soliloquy like oh. nothing. No, I mean, I did. I, I there was that a, video somewhere. Yeah. And I had no concept really of what was happening with the, you know, the, the abuse of the daughter and the coming back as, as it goes. Yeah. We kind of skimmed, we kind of glossed over some of the really dark parts of that and uh, rewrote some of the back half, but it was, uh, yeah, I, I, I do remember doing all my, all my high school musicals with, with, uh, uh, with a, a lot of love. Do you, how do you make your decision about college? So you go to Princeton, not for theater, not for acting. What, what is the thought of, I want to, I'm a, an adult, I'm doing this. Yeah. 
So again, I wanted a, quote, regular life. Uh, while my parents probably would have preferred that I went to somewhere like NYU and studied musical theater or music or something, uh, I thought that I wanted to have a, an opportunity to have a stable and, again, what I thought was a normal nine-to-five job existence. So what did I do? I applied to Princeton. <clears throat> now, of course, I used my Broadway background uh, every every step of the way to get into that school uh, with the promise that I would want to be a part of the musical theater community there and I would want to be a part of like maybe an acapella group. Or I ultimately joined uh, the Triangle Club at Princeton, which is their version of like Harvard's Hasty Pudding or, or Mask and Wig from Penn. Uh, it's this amazing, wonderful organization. Uh, it's like a hundred, it's like one of the oldest musical theater groups in the, in the country. Um, they have this wonderful budget. They, they helped to build the McCarter theater at Princeton, which is a, a big, you know, sort of off-Broadway tour stop. And, uh, so we did, um, I, 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 <laughs> I majored in economics and finance and, and I took like Chinese and, um, after two years, I absolutely had a, like a nervous breakdown. Right. I was spending all of my time and all of my energy and my love at, you know, doing the Triangle Club. I really did not like my classes. Uh, it wasn't them. It was just me. I, I, I got through the first year pretty strong and the second year came around. And the only way I could describe it is I guess when I was in high school, maybe a lot of people can relate to this. Like when you're in middle school, high school, you do the work because you're told to. And I didn't really question why. I mean, there's always sort of like you've got to get into a good college and sort of that's why you work hard. And also, and for me, I just, I did it because I was told to and I sort of had an endless or what I thought was like a bottomless reservoir of uh, determination to get my work done, even though I was, even though I was a procrastinator and I, you know, certainly didn't work as hard as I might have otherwise. Uh, I, I got it done because I was supposed to. And then I, my freshman, my sophomore year at Princeton, I really started to question the why of it and staring down the barrel of, if I finish this, these courses, if I finish out what I'm doing here for another two plus years, I will be an investment banker, I guess, or like I'll be in venture yeah. capital. Or it, and there, that's not to say anything, I guess it just was so, in that moment, I sort of had this split in myself where I'm like, I'm studying to do this thing because I think I'm quote supposed to, but then every fiber of my being is screaming out for me to do something else and saying, you know, sort of saying, what the hell are you doing? This is antithetical to everything you've ever done your entire life. And I guess maybe there was a part of me that always was like, well, I'll get back to musical theater when the time, I'll get back to music and, you know, singing and whatever when the time comes. And I guess that's when the time was going to come. It was going to come in the middle of my sophomore year when Listen, and Princeton's no joke. Uh, you know, I mean, you if you don't if you're not full bore, it's hard enough when you are full bore. Imagine it's a school full of everyone who was the top four percent at their particular high school, and they're all now competing against each other. And imagine going from being one of the top in your high school to being the bottom at Princeton because you by by definition someone has to be at the bottom, right? I mean, like it's like the smartest people all all. And so if you, again, if you're not like full gung ho on your classes you really, it's really hard to maintain. And I just couldn't, I couldn't hang my brain. I just like shut off and, and shut down and became completely depressed. I had to move home in the summer, uh, and, and take a year off. And during that year, uh, try to figure out my life. And so I, <laughs> I ended up, I sang a few songs that my sister, one of my, my oldest sister, Jen got married that year, that summer. And I sang at her wedding and her wedding band uh, asked me if I would sing with them after that. So I started singing for a wedding and bar mitzvah band for a year, uh, living at home in Philadelphia while trying to figure out my life. And uh, that was enough to get me to sort of re-motivate into music and theater and acting. And I remember on my 21st birthday, I uh, I was cleaning out no, excuse me. I wasn't cleaning out. I was sitting in my room, my bedroom, my my childhood bedroom, 21 years old, not in college, working as a wedding and bar mitzvah singer. Like, what am I doing with my life? Uh, 
And I got this call out of the blue. I had done a show in Philadelphia at the Walnut Street Theater called Twist. It was a multiracial version of Oliver. Also, by the way, starring Andrew McCardle. So my whole, there's my full circle Andrew McCardle. There you go. There it is. A little me. If you haven't had her yet, you got to have her. We're uh, working on it. Work on, work on her. So she, so I got this call from a guy, his name is Jason Wilkerson. And he said, and he had been in the show with me uh, at Twist nine years earlier and he called me and he said, he said, I just found the contact. He's like, I'm cleaning out my apartment in Pittsburgh. I just found the contact sheet from Twist that I saw your name and I had to call you. And I just couldn't believe it. It's like, yeah, man. I was, and I thought to myself, man, that guy must be so tall by now. <laughs> like, no, I'm not. Adult. But I really appreciate the call. <laughs> it's my 21st birthday. So nice to hear from you. Anyway, we got to talking and I, I told him that I was thinking about getting back into business. And he told me to call his manager. And I did, and she took me on, and I sort of became a professional actor again on that day. And I, I moved to New York that summer with my two best friends just for the summer and fell in love with the city and, and stayed and went to, I took like multiple years uh, at a, like a heavy-duty conservatory uh, acting program at the Atlantic Theater Company. Um, and of course, by the time I was out of that, I was like, okay, I'm only going to do Chekhov, Ibsen, Beckett, Shaw, Shakespeare, that's it, nothing else. And then, of course, I uh, booked Jersey Boys right away. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Tell me about Jersey Boys. It was a huge part of your life. You yeah. played the role like 2,000 times. <laughs> yeah, um, 1,500 times. Oh my God, that's so wild. Is that just Broadway or is that Broadway and the tours? And Yeah, that's all That's All, all together. Yeah. <laughs> okay, 1,500 times is a lot of times to do anything. Yes. Talk to me about taking on this huge role and how much you needed to feel like you needed to do what was already there, how much you can make it your own. Give me the Frankie Valley story. Yeah, sure. So I got the role while I was playing. First of all, I auditioned for the original Broadway production and I got down to the very end the year before. So this is like the end for me personally, <clears throat> of course, like having got if I had gotten the role in the original Broadway company, wouldn't that have been amazing? But I was at the end of my first year of conservatory and I can look back and honestly say I just wasn't ready and I wasn't ready to leave and um, my second year at the Atlantic, my, my second or second and a half full year at the Atlantic was invaluable. And so I'm, I'm glad that I was able to go back, but I was a little crushed at the time to be the one out of like four guys who didn't get a, a job. It was, it was like, it was Michael Longoria and he became Pesci and my buddy, Dominic Nolfi, who was, who became the swing and cover for both roles and my, John Lloyd Young, who, play, who ended up playing Frankie and me. And I was just too young and I didn't get a job. So perfect. But a year later, uh, I was playing uh, Hamlet at the Atlantic Theater's like uh, second stage, like their little theater on 16th Street, which is great little down down um, underground theater, and that's when I got the call for the the beginning of the first national tour. So then I started auditioning again. So now here I am, you know, in the evenings and in rehearsals, and you know, saying some of the most beautiful language ever written. Shakespeare or otherwise. And then of course also like learning a Jersey accent and again, and like, and singing high falsetto, which is a, you know, sort of bizarre juxtaposition. So then I got the role, uh, after, you know, after, after a bunch of callbacks and it was, you know, this life changing moment. Um, or so I thought uh, there was a little bit of a twist and turn on the way I was hired originally to be the one and only eight show a week, Frankie on the tour. And John Lloyd was doing all eight shows, uh, on Broadway, there was no six and two split at the time, but I had a contract squabble that I, you know, I'm not going to get into, uh, cause it's just boring, but long story short, I was like sort of fired and then rehired based on a contract uh, dispute. 
And when I was rehired, I was rehired as the two show a week on the original national tour. Um, and simultaneously, they established a six and two split on Broadway between John Lloyd and Michael Longoria. So now you've got like a six and two split. And, and honestly, having played the role, I can tell you that is way healthier. It's, it's, it's damn near impossible to sing that show eight times a week. You know, I know it was done originally in the Broadway company so that the person playing the role could win the Tony Award. But outside of having that as the carrot, I, I, I you know, it's just, it's so hard. I don't know what the upside would be. So uh, I, got, I got the role two shows a week and I, you know, moved to San Francisco with the tour and started like, uh, yeah, and able to put my mark on it. I mean, that's an interesting question. Uh, I think that certain directors... Uh, are more open to an actor's interpretation of things than others, for one. And also, when you're taking over a role in a show that is absolutely a well-oiled machine and has proven to work, there's like a little less room to be like, I'm going to do my thing. You know what I mean? And and also, he's a real person. So like, sort of, you know, you're a little boxed in as to how many new choices you can make. And I can't be like Frankie Valli, you know, with an eye patch and a limp. It's like, that's not going to be a thing. So... I'd love to see it. Just oh, it would be great. Yeah, I mean, and I did have an ankle injury for a while, so I had a slight limp for some of the shows, but I don't think it added to my character. How different does it feel as an adult on Broadway after having an experience as a kid on Broadway? Yeah. Um. So I did the show out of town for like two years. I did a show for a year in San Francisco and then a year in Chicago, opening those two companies, and then those were amazing. And like being back on stage in that way was magic and I, you know it suddenly was like oh this is the full circle i needed like doing this as an adult was the thing that i needed the thing that i wanted and you know being here on my own steam and then i got back to the broadway company even though i've been doing the show for 2 years and i walked into the august wilson theater on 52nd street and i just burst into tears i mean it was it was different it's different uh, you know i mean there's the, the tour houses are amazing the, the the crowds are wonderful the theaters are awesome it's just Broadway is singular and uh, having not been there since I was, you know, 11 or whatever, and it was, you know, 15 or 16 or so, however many years later, it was a very different and new feeling. And, uh, and it's sort of affirmed for me the the choices that I had made. And, you know, despite the roller coaster situation and having, having had clinical depression and leaving Princeton and taking Prozac for a year and trying to figure out who the hell I was going to be, here I was, I had sort of made it back. And um, yeah, it was, a, it, was a, it, was a, it was a really nice moment. Well, you followed up that performance with Beautiful, which was a huge, huge hit. Yeah. Did you anticipate that would happen? Like when you were in rehearsals for Beautiful, did you think like, this is gonna, this is gonna be a Jersey Boys situation? Uh, no. I did not. I honest, I honestly, and this is, uh, this is no disrespect to the, to any, to any of it. Um, I, let me, let me rephrase this. When we did the, when I did the first reading, I was not convinced that it was a huge hit. Like I just, this, I was like, obviously the songs are awesome, but what does that mean? How many bad jukebox musicals have there been with an amazing songbook? But there were a couple of things that I admit in retrospect that I was, was underestimating. One was Carol King as a protagonist is very special. She is special. Um, she's obviously a very different character and a very different dynamic than Frankie. Frankie, you know, Frankie's a selfish kind of a guy. And I, and I say that with, with a lot of love for the real person and the character, but I mean, the character presented on stage, I mean, you know, he's, uh, he's, he's ambitious and he's kind of jealous and he's got a little bit of a Napoleon thing going. I mean, you know, there's like a lot about Frankie to, to love and also some things that are like, you know, I mean that, I think that's why Jersey voice is so good, right? It's, it's a little bit warts and all um, it's, you know, it's an imperfect guy. It's an imperfect group, but they made this amazing music that just lasts forever. And that's why, Whereas Carol is just so um, unerringly lovable from the moment you meet her. She's just so winning. And the Carol in real life is like, I could cry talking about her because she's just so sweet. And her music is, is so deep and real and vulnerable. And its ability to translate on stage, not as sung dialogue, uh, but as... Uh, as a songbook for her story and for a, a time period, um, it just it was just a perfect mix of things. And then I remember we did the the reading, and I I was like, yeah, this is fun. I'll be like, you know, it's you know, we're the it's like we're the the comedy second comedy couple, you know, and uh, it's like um, you know, like in Oklahoma or in any you know any yeah. show that's got like a funny second comedy couple. That's us. And 
then Bernadette Peters was in the second row of this reading and she was bawling at the end. And I was like, oh, I'm missing something. Something is happening in this room that I am not completely following. Of course, the music was great. Again, I just fell in love with the music. And 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 like everybody else who sees that show or hears the soundtrack, blown away by these the, the songbooks of these two couples. And particularly Carol, where you're like, oh my God, she wrote that? She sang that? She wrote that? Um, and of course, and Barry's man and Cynthia Wilde, their songbook is unbelievable and way more expansive than what you see in Beautiful. I mean, they wrote somewhere out there for the love of oh God. My God. You know what I mean? like, these, these people are incredible. So, uh, you know, all of that was, was mind blowing in its way. But again, I just wasn't. And then I saw her cry and I saw all the people in the audience crying. I'm like, okay, this is, first of all, this is touching. And I, I don't, I don't mean to sound like an ignorant man. This is, this is touching the women in the room in a way that maybe I'm not quite sure of at this moment, like that I don't, that I'm not relating to exactly in the same way. Um, and it's also speaking to a generation of people who grew up with that music, which again, it's just like, Jersey Boys, like if I had heard Sherry and Big Girls Don't Cry and Walk Like a Man on stage the very first time, like when I did, it was exciting, but I didn't remember making out to that song. Yeah. I, you know, that wasn't the song that made me like so many of Carol's songs get in touch with myself emotionally, um, allow myself to cry, like to hear this woman sit at a piano and sing about her feelings and sing in this vulnerable, real, raw way. It's everything that's amazing about Carol King and her music. Uh, able to be put into a show, and I, I just underestimated it. But then when we went to San Francisco and we started to see the reactions there, I was convinced. And by the time we got to Broadway, I was pretty sure it was going to be a hit. Now that I didn't know it was going to run for six years, uh, and I don't think anybody knew, but I, I, I was pretty sure that we had something special. Um, and you know, uh, not least of which because we had Jesse Mueller, who was you know just otherworldly. Yeah. Tell me about getting a Tony nomination because that's like a big deal for any kid who especially grows up in this business. It feels like, you know, the pinnacle of what you can do. It does. Um, huh. I'm a little bit more jaded about it now than I was then. <laughs> it's just like, because no, you know, the more you learn about anything, you're like, oh, this is so super circumstantial. On any given year, you might have one leading man or six leading men and four or five spots, or you might have 20 or 24 possible supporting actors and only five get in and only one wins. You know, it's just like the dynamics, the ratios, the numbers, the odds are just so variable. But you still, year after you year. still get it. You still no, get the nomination. Sure. Yes. Oh, no, 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 for sure. I'm, I'm just saying, yeah. I get that, you know, in retrospect. Yeah. I mean, getting, yes, we were watching the, we watched it that morning. I remember, uh, I had been nominated for an outer critic circle, but then I was passed over for the next couple of other, you know, drama sort of desk sub, or whatever. drama desk. Yeah. yeah. Like the sort of sub Tony awards. And then there was the morning of, uh, of the nominations that I knew they were going to be on. And my wife was we were laying in bed and I was, I couldn't sleep. And she's like, do you want to, should we just watch? Let's just watch. And I was like, fine, we'll go watch. And, uh, I'm really glad we did because <laughs> you know, when, uh, Lucy Liu pronounced my name properly, I would like, I would scream just so much profanity running around the room screaming and my wife screaming. It was, you know, it's one of those. It's so cool. It's one of those great moments. It's one of, you know, there being an actor, there's a lot of lows and a lot of very low lows and like long stretches of disappointment. And there are some moments that you remember forever. And that was one of them. It was, it was really cool. And uh, of course, you know, my phone just blowing up off the hook and everyone calling and freaking out and, then I got a call from an unknown number, which I normally wouldn't answer, but what the hell, you know, it's Tony day. And I answer and it was, it was Carol. And, uh, you know, it was just, you know, of course she did. I of mean, course of course she called me. And, uh, what's funny is a couple of weeks earlier, uh, she, so she had never seen the show. She'd never seen beautiful. We had, we had done the show. Oh, are you about to ask no, me about I would, this? No, I, I, that video that of her surprising you all on stage yes. is like the most incredible thing ever. Oh, like I remember a, sitting at my desk crying. I'm like, I'm not even in the show or even care about it, but it was so amazing. Tell, oh, it's tell amazing. us the story. We were all in love with her already. You know what I mean? Like we have been doing this show. Like you have to convince yourself, e even if you don't believe in it, but in, in her case, it was so easy to believe in it, right? If you're going to do a show and you're going to get up there every day, day after day after day, you have to be doing it in defense of and in celebration of the protagonist. And in this case, the heroine of the story, who is Carol King. And it's easy to root for her. It's easy to get up there and defend her. Um, 
because she's awesome. And she had come only to one day of rehearsal. That was the only time we met her. Uh, and she explained to us why she didn't, why she, even though that she was a hundred percent in favor of the show and that she was supportive and that she was reading the drafts, she just didn't want to watch difficult moments in her life unfold for her on stage. And she also didn't want to sit in the audience and have other people watch her watch it. And we're like, Oh, that, you know, how do you argue with that? It makes complete sense. And then she didn't show up. That was like November. So we had already done the out of town. Then we met her one day at rehearsal. Then we had been running on Broadway for like six months. It's the middle of April. And she showed up right after, like, right. I was doing the Broadway cares equity fights AIDS speech. Uh, the producers and, um, our stage manager had told me that there were going to be people in the audience. Like, Don't be alarmed. It's no big deal. They're going to film you doing the Broadway care speech. Uh, they're going to like put it on Broadway cares. I think they lied. They, they lied to me about something, you know, like Instagram or something. And I was like, okay, I'm an idiot. I'm, I'm an actor. I do what I'm told. Sure. No problem. I'll, I'll give the speech. And then of course, in the middle, there's the big gasp from the crowd and you look over and there she is, you know, just coming out in her, in her golden blonde curl glory and hugs all of us. And, and, uh, and says, uh, you know, and if you please go watch her say this because she says, and like with tears, first of all, she had been in a disguise so no one would have known, but she took it all off and she comes out and she says, I just saw this for the first time and it is effing awesome. <laughs> <laughs> like, this is it. This is why we do it. Oh my God. And uh, yeah. And then she, um, she wanted, of course, the audience screamed at her to sing, to please sing a song. So, she did. Uh, you know, we, we I quickly held an, an auction and for people to meet her after the after the singing of the song, we raised thirty thousand dollars for Broadway Cares in like two seconds. Amazing. Three different people each bid ten thousand dollars for her to sing and for then to meet her afterwards. And uh so we sang we all as a big company sang You've Got a Friend. And she sang the first verse and then she asked Jesse to sing the the chorus with her. And then in the uh there's a little musical interlude in between the first and second verse, and the you know, the band is just vamping and she she asked me to come sing the second verse. Now, here's the thing. If you've seen the show or listened to the album, we don't sing the second verse of that song in the show. So despite the fact that it might have been stuck somewhere in the recesses of my brain, in that moment, I couldn't remember the words. But I wasn't going to be like, no, thank you. <laughs> so I walked over and I said, I don't know the words. And she said, no problem. I'll whisper them to you. So now in front of the thousand people in the audience and all of their iPhones, this is online. You can go watch this. She, Carol whispers the lyrics into my ear and, I, and I'm trying to sing them. And that old north wind begins to blow. Now, if someone says old north wind begins to blow, you're like, I don't know how that <laughs> phrasing goes. I was like, that old north uh, uh, begins to, I mean, oh, it was just so bad. It was, just, <laughs> but she was as lovely as could be about it. I love all of it. Our, we have, we have to kind of wrap up, but I just, we have to touch on share really quickly. Sure. Of course. Um, wait, I'm so sorry. Can I just say that the, the whole reason I tangented to that is because when Carol King called me to congratulate me on getting a Tony nomination that morning, she apologized to me for putting me on the spot on stage. And that's the woman she is. And of course, I was like, are you? It's one of the most famous songs ever written. I am an idiot. I am so sorry. I am your biggest fan. I worship you. I am a moron. Thank you for calling. Thank you. Did did Cher call you today too? Or she doesn't call you? Cher doesn't call me. Cher doesn't no. call you. Cher doesn't um, call me. So obviously we share a, a very favorite human, Michaela Diamond, yes. um, which you got to sort of work with on Cher and have such great that whole first half of that show with you two is just so dynamic. And I had the best time uh, being part of it, uh, seeing it opening and all of that and, and getting yeah. to see it through her eyes. It was just very cool. What do you take from that experience doing these three sort of kind of jukebox musicals that are, have all hit in different ways? What do you take from the share experience? Ooh. So First of all, the thing that I took from the show more than anything that I will keep with me forever is, in fact, Michaela Diamond. Um, I was able to bond with her during rehearsals, during the workshop. I was able to see an 18-year-old kid, 19-year-old kid become a woman, become a star, um, and work with her and love her and and support her. And I, I, just, I just think so highly of her. She is my little sister, and I just adore her. So of all the things I got from the Cher show, uh, Michaela Diamond ranks at the very top. Uh, you know, the Share Show again was a was an uh, yeah, like as you said, another jukebox musical. Here we go. It's another experience. Um, I, I it's 
look, there's no there's no way around talking about that the share show did not last as long as we thought that it would, as long as we thought that it should. Uh, there were some spectacular performances inside of it. There were some uh, some disagreements as to the direction of the show at times, or like you know, I mean, there you know, there's plenty of plenty of critics about you know which way or the other the show ought to have done this, that, or the other thing. But it's hard. It's hard to fit. Six decades of a person's life into a two and a half hour musical and make yeah. it satisfying. Um, obviously, the songbook is was was plenty strong, but it's you know it's it's an imperfect. It's it's look. It's a very difficult medium. It's the ultimate team sport. Everybody has to be pushing it in in the same direction at the same time, and also be in a season when the that type of musical is accepted. You know, maybe if the Share Show had come out when Jersey Boys came out, it would have been a hit. But once the bar gets set at like Jersey Boys level, and and this is no disrespect to the Share Show because I'm super proud of what we did, but like once that you know, who knows who knows why that show didn't last? Whereas Beautiful went six years. Maybe it's the presentation of the show. Maybe it. It was look beautiful. It was only a a a twelve year story, and so you're able to spend a little bit more time on each piece and really zoom in uh, on Carol's life and the, and both couples' lives. Uh, whereas with the share show, you know, by by definition, like you can only spend so much time on each piece of her life, and so you know, it, things just have to sort of barrel forward. I don't know if that was the reason that it didn't last as long. I I can say that. It it sounded spectacular. It was so much fun to sing the songs. It was such a fun experience for me to play um, a controversial figure, controversial in her life, uh, controversial as a person in general because he was sort of he was controlling, um, but he was also the reason that she became Cher, and he was kind of without. A, you know, not highly talented, but also an incredibly talented songwriter. Like we could say whatever we want, but the guy wrote lots of songs that we all still sing, including I Got You, Babe, one of the most famous songs in American music history. So, you know, he's sort of this, this bizarre blend. He's like funny, but not funny. I mean, I think that his like, big talent was being brash, uh, you know, and that's sort of the thing I, I take from it. Um, you know, there's a, at, at his, uh, at his funeral, um, Cher says, and 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 it was quoted in the show. She says it in the show as well. Is that you know, Sonny, Sonny was always was never afraid to be the butt of the joke because he created the joke, and that is like the thing that I'll take from that is is uh, you know, don't take yourself so seriously. Have the courage to you know to be the butt of the joke. Have the confidence. I mean, it just Sonny. You can't play Sonny without putting on some bravado and confidence. That I that I admit. A lot of the time, I don't have necessarily naturally. I mean, this guy was able to go out in front of a live studio audience and the entire country week after week and stand next to his beautiful five eight, you know, plus heels wife who would just pick on him and tell him what a short, goofy, you know, Italian meatball eating, you know, <laughs> monkey he was. And yet he could do it every week because he created that dynamic. Yeah. He created the joke and he had, he had the confidence to do it. It just, you know, Sonny. Well, you were brilliant in that show. And I thought you kind of hit that middle right in there that you were so lovable and also not. And <laughs> yeah. it was, it was like a great performance and you should Thank be you. so proud of your work in that show. And Thank you, I know all of my, I saw four times and my experience each time was just pure joy. Um, watching yeah you all work, but seeing Michaela and seeing that the joy was bringing to everyone around me, you know, it yeah. was, uh, it was really special. So congratulations I, on that. Thank you. And it's one of those shows where people would come up to us afterwards and be like, I had such a good time. And in some other shows, when people say that, that's like the thing that they say, cause they can't think of anything good to say, but at they the actually show, had a good time. <laughs> yes. Oh, that was it. And that was the point. Yeah. You're at the share show. If you don't have a good time, we are not doing it right. And I just, uh, I wish it had stuck around a little longer and more people. Me too. It. it was great. All right. We have to do, what are you obsessed with right now, Jared? The West Wing. Okay. Uh, I have watched the entire, the entire series once before. Um, I actually watched it when I had first started Jersey Boys back in the day in San Francisco, holed up in a hotel room, only doing the show twice a week with nothing to do. So watching uh, seven episodes of a 26 episode season, we'll see six, six seasons. There we go. Episode, who cares? Big deal. Uh, but now watching it, it's like having medicine. It's like having mental medicine every night watching that show. 
this uh, my obsession this week is not from currently, but we were, I wanted to talk about it with you, which yes. is Wormwood on Netflix. Oh wow! Okay, you've watched it obviously because you're in girl. it. It's yeah. so good. So if you're into true crime or you're into that sort of doc series situation, check out Jared on Wormwood. Yeah, um, a little bit of conspiracy theory stuff. It's so I good. mean, I I don't want to tout conspiracy theorists or conspiracy theories, but there is. I mean, it is. You know, it's but it uh, makes it's, sense. True. it's very this unsolved was, mysteries. Yeah ask and it's really well it's beautifully done it's really like probably well done. one of the best shot documentary it's like half acted and half reenacted and mm -hmm. it's it's really cool so check out yeah. wormwood all yeah. right are you ready for the Broadway workshop quick fire questions oh goodness i'm not sure but I'm you're gonna, gonna do great okay, first can't. audition song little people favorite holiday thanksgiving the first Broadway show you saw lame as rob tell me one thing about working with stephanie block she is a powerhouse if you can go back in time and do one performance of anything from your career, what would it be? Jersey Boys. <laughs> what would your superhero power be? Falsetto. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I feel ability. like you have that. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna go with the Wolverine uh, heel forever kind of thing. That's all right. One. What do you want on your bagel? Uh, um locks do you have a pre-show ritual yes i do a 30 minute warm-up i do a 30 minute vocal warm-up between before every show strangest fan interaction Ooh, weird um yeah i remember once coming out of a uh a, a, the the, <laughs> the stage door at the august wilson and someone you know I mean, jersey boys had some serious and still does have some very hardcore devotees and the one was like I, she said, and she was so earnest and excited. And she's like, you are my fourth favorite Frankie. <laughs> I think that right. might be the title of this episode. I am fourth still, favorite I Frankie. still have like my show sweat, like <sighs> get out of here. Yeah. Okay. Um, one show you'll never get over not getting. Ooh. Oh, so many, but, um, Oh, this one's a little bit personal. And this is, not, again, you know, it's a little, I I, uh, I did the last workshop for, like the big workshop for Bandstand. I really thought it was just such a fun show and it's how Lar and I became really close. And uh, when that didn't work out, that was pretty crushing. Go-to album for a car trip? Um, the Beatles' Abbey Road. What song would you like to duet with Patti LuPone on? <laughs> um, uh, Name and Lights from Legs Diamond. Ooh, Peter Allen. Can you yeah. name two real housewives? No. Favorite Lame is memory. Favorite Lame is memory? Yeah. Um, the first time I did the show, honestly, I remember. Um, so, you know, you're you're nine years old, the show is going. They, you know, a stage manager walked me to the middle of the, the scrim is up, but the barricades are in place behind it. There's steam everywhere. They walk me to center stage. I lay down on a grate with a blanket over me. Now all of these vagrants are moaning and the steam is going and it is truly terrifying. But I, like the actor I am, was trained to be, you know, the cue comes and I jump up and like, I, I went from fear to like full exhilaration. And I, I still, to this day, like remember that second of running down the stage and starting to sing. It's just the coolest. Name one musical you're okay with never seeing again. Oh, that's going to be super controversial. Okay. You can, you can pass. You're allowed to pass um, once. No, 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 no. There's <laughs> something on something I'm, I'm good to never see again. Um, I would say Jersey Boys. I don't need to watch it again. I've, right. I've seen it. I don't need to see it again. If you can go back in time and see any Broadway show, what would it be? Oh, goodness. Um, uh, the original uh, Sunday in the Park. What is your Starbucks order? Uh, a, a short double shot latte. Do you do any impressions? Yes, I do. Um, I do some. My favorite is, oh, this is so bad. I actually did this on stage as Frankie Valley once um, because one of the creators of South Park was in the in, in the show. But, but I do a pretty good comment every, every now and then. You guys. You, you. <laughs> yeah, that's very that. good. Very good. Um, have you ever left a show at intermission? No, I have never left a show at intermission. Good on you. Favorite song in Jersey Boys? Who loves you? 
because it was the end of the show. <laughs> what movie can you watch over and over? When Harry Met Sally. Awesome. You did it. You killed it. Jared, <laughs> I am obsessed with your albums too. We didn't really get to talk about them, but everybody oh, go God. listen to Jared on Spotify. His two incredible albums, a live album and a studio album that, and I don't like listening to men sing. It is like not for me, but you <laughs> are an exception to the rules. Like you and Norm Lewis, I would listen to you sing anything. Oh. So oh, that is good. the kindest company. God, I love Norm Lewis. God, yes, what a voice, you. right? I know. Um, tell the people where they can follow you and find out what you're up to when you're back on stage and all that fun stuff. Yeah, sure. Um, I, I I have a Facebook page, but I don't go on Facebook out of principle. Um, I am on Twitter all the time, but mostly I'm just complaining about politics. Great. Um, and I am on Instagram, but I get I don't really go on Instagram much. So I'm not, this is like the worst <laughs> advertising for social media, but I do occasionally, I am occasionally on there. Um, it's Great. at Jared. It's just my name at Jared Spector. Well, we will find you there, Jared. Thank you so much for taking the time today. I loved getting to chat with you. Likewise. Thank you so much for having You're me. The You're the best. Um, if you're loving the little me podcast, remember to rate and subscribe and follow us at little me podcast on Instagram and we'll see you next week. Thank you listeners. This podcast is produced by Alan Seals, Dory Berenstein and the Broadway podcast network and edited by Derek Gunther. For more information on the Little Me podcast, go to bpn.fm slash little me. And follow me on Instagram at Mark Tuminelli or on Twitter at That Tuminelli. And for more information on workshops, classes, and everything Broadway Workshop, go to broadwayworkshop.com. Thank you for listening. Have you ever wondered how your favorite performer actually feels? Well, here's your chance. Welcome to The Quiet Part Out Loud with me, Bobby Steggert, Broadway actor and now a therapist to a whole host of Broadway creatives. Part interview, part therapy, this is not your typical podcast. We'll go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists, what they still struggle with, what lessons they've learned, what they haven't figured out yet. There's enormous power in saying the quiet part out loud. Are you listening? Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.